a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 104, part of Ben's Cosmic Comics series. This episode, Marvel's licensed comic books with the cover date of December 1978, including Star Wars 18, Human Fly 16, Godzilla 17, Marvel Super Special number 6 featuring Jaws 2, John Carter 19, and the final issues of Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Comic Book Time Machine Presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and it's been too long. Yes, it has. Uh, it has for me anyway. And for those of you out in podcast land, some of you, you've been waiting. Some of you, you're listening to this now and you're wondering what's he talking about. I didn't notice any wait because they're on episode 134 and... You know how podcasting works. People find podcasts. They start listening to podcasts and the rules of time and space don't apply with podcasts, and especially time traveling podcasts like this. Now, for this set uh, where we're looking at December cover date of 1978, we are going back in time to take a look and see what's on the spinner rack. So you need to take your Omni. And you set that Omni for September 1978. So we can pull these comic books off the spinner rack with the cover date of December 1978 and buy some 35 cent comics. Now, um, that seems like a great deal. Uh, although recently we did have an even better deal here in 2017. We did have a free comic book day, which I actually I need to do an episode about that because I had some pretty awesome things in, drop into my lap for free comic book day. And I also have a comic book on hold at my local comic shop. It's been on hold for two weeks now. Uh, and it was only 25 cents. Uh, it was sword quest, <laughs> which is one of those Atari comics that they're doing. And, um, it's 25 cents and my local comic shop has a $5 limit for a card. And then whenever I go there, I don't have ca uh, cash. So I've had to wait two weeks to get that book because I've got things on my pull list and almost every week there's at least something there for me. But for the last two Wednesdays, nothing. And so it's waiting for me and uh, my local comic shop owner, he's, he's, he's fine with it, but we, we just have to wait because I never bring cash and I wasn't going to use the one quarter that was in the van the last time I went because that quarter is my wife's quarter that she uses to get the cart at Aldi. Yes, we shop at Aldi. We are. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll call it frugal. We're, we're frugal. Uh, you could say we're cheap. You could also say that we're poor. But no matter how you're looking at it, we're shopping at Aldi. And so that that quarter is in there for a specific purpose. There used to be more quarters in there, uh, but someone got into our cars and stole all the change out of our cars. So my car, my wife's van, uh, all the change was gone. So that quarter in there is not mine to touch, to buy 
a quarter comic. I'll just have to wait and see what happens this coming Wednesday. So anyway, uh, let's see. Um, I do want to do an episode about the free comic book day thing on the main feed. Um, and actually, as you're listening to this, I might have already done so by the time this episode goes live, because you know how time travel, the laws of space and time don't apply. This is podcasting and, uh, you know, just throw out all of the things you learn in physics, just throw it out the window. And we're doing comic book time travel here, not even good sci-fi time travel, just comic book time travel. So looking at spinner rack today, we've got all the standards, you know, you see there's a Spider-Man, there's the X-Men, there's defenders, there's Avengers. There's another Spider-Man book and another one. Uh, but we also have star Wars number 18 and we have human fly number 16 and we have Godzilla number 17 and we have John Carter number 19. And what's this on the magazine rack next to the spinner rack, Marvel super special number six. Hmm. Well, What's on the cover there? That's a shark. Hmm. Well, we'll be getting to this later, but this will be the second Peter Benchley related comic book that we've been looking at. And uh, yeah, I, I wonder if it's going to be as good as the deep. Well, well, we will see. Oh, and of course, there's Devil Dinosaur Machine Man number nine. So it looks like we have a pretty cool month of comics here with December of 1978, the cover date. So let's get started. Star Wars issue number 18 uh, went on sale September 26th of 1978. The cover price, like I said before, 35 cents. Page count, 32. But story pages, not 32. <laughs> There's only 17. And that's par for the course. That's still, I mean, you're getting a cover image for a penny. And then you're getting a page of story for two cents each. I mean, this is a good deal. As long as the comic book is good, it's a good deal. Anyway, the writer is Archie Goodwin. He's also the editor. Uh, the penciler is Carm Carmine Infantino. And the inker, Gene Day. The letterer is Rick Parker. The colorist is Janice Cohen. And the consulting editor, Jim Shooter. The title of the story, The Empire Strikes. Not back. No, the Empire isn't striking back yet. Uh, it's getting around to striking back right now. It's just plain striking. Um, although I'm not sure how much striking actually happens. It's more chasing and getting ready to strike than actual striking. But, you know, we can quibble about the title later. The cover to this comic is just really odd for me. And it's odd for two different reasons for me. Reason number one is, like I said, the Empire Strikes. I mean, the cover itself has the, the little... Um, the corner box with Luke Skywalker and his red lightsaber and then says adventures beyond the greatest space fantasy film of all. And I, again, I would not disagree. We are talking about definitely the greatest space fantasy film of all in that first star Wars and the greatest space fantasy franchise of all as well. Um, but then it says the empire strikes. It just cracks me up because this, you know, they obviously did not know, uh, that this was going to be the title of the movie. It seems like nobody knew that this was going to be the title of the second movie because, let's be honest, uh, if they had known at Lucasfilm, they would never have allowed them to call this The Empire Strikes. 
But it's also odd to me because of the actual picture that's there on the cover. And this just cracks me up. You have uh, framing around the main image of the cover is a bunch of stormtrooper heads and guns. And they're all pointed at one thing. And it's, you know, a classic cover in that way, because even, uh, you know, you have Star Wars in the bold lettering, but the Empire Strikes is kind of tapered uh, down. So it's wider at the top and it gets thinner. And that's if it continued, it would be, you know, a triangle that would point to the middle of this bottom, the middle of the bottom half of the, the, of the cover. And so everything on this cover is pointing to C-3PO. And not just pointing to C-3PO, it's pointing to C-3PO holding Luke Skywalker in his arms. Um, you know, if you think about the cover of, uh, I, I believe it's uh, Crisis on Infinite Earth, I'm not sure what issue it is, where Superman is holding Supergirl's body in his arms, and she's dead. You know, she's just laying limp in his arms. And and there's a Batman holding Robin. Uh, you know, there's these are classics of comic book cover uh, imagery. They go back to this often. And they, they do this riff on this, this, you know, the character holding someone else. I've seen, you know, I've seen it with Thor. I've, I've seen it with a number of different characters, a number of different comic books, uh, even before the Crisis comic book that, that to me, is, I think is probably the most famous. And this is before that, too, with... C-3PO holding Luke Skywalker in his arms. And I'm just thinking to myself, I didn't realize that C-3PO was strong enough to be able to hold a, you know, a, a healthy, um, average size human being in his arms. Now, I shouldn't say healthy. I mean, Luke's not looking good. In fact, I noticed he's not looking good, but one of the stormtroopers also notices he's not looking good. The stormtrooper says... There's the wounded rebel spy. Vaporize him and the droids. And behind C-3PO is R2-D2. And yeah, so anyway, this was drawn by Carmen Infantino. And it, as I was looking at this, I thought, well, this must be something that's representational of what goes on in the comic. There's no way that this actual scene happened in the comic. Or did it? Well. I've already read the comic, so I know. But uh, spoiler, it happens in the comic. It does. And so this just cracks me up. And it's a great cover, you know, as far as composition and the way it draws the eye, the way it's supposed to draw the eye and everything like that. But it just seems so absurd to me. C-3PO holding Luke Skywalker. I don't know why. Maybe it shouldn't seem absurd to me. Um, But there it is. So let's get inside this book, though. Inside the book, we have um, Archie Goodwin is the writer editor, and he is continuing the story that he had been writing. It's taking off directly from last issue, sort of, because last issue was a fill in with um, was plotted by Chris Claremont, although scripted by Archie Goodwin and it had help from uh, Herb Trimpey and Al Milgram as well. And it was a fill-in issue, I think, because of an artist transition situation they had going on here. Because Carmine Infantino is the guy who will be doing a lot of the artwork for Star Wars in the, in the, the upcoming months, from what I know. Um, I don't know how many issues, and I'm not sure if it's every single one, but I think it is for a long while here. And uh, so we have this new team. They're going to get us back on track after using that fill-in issue, which was, you know, a solo Luke adventure. But... 
he's in the Millennium Falcon thinking about this adventure he had as a young, younger boy on Tatooine. And it's because he's, he's on the Millennium Falcon because they are going to Yavin base. And that's from two issues ago when they left to go to Yavin base. And now they're continuing that journey. And uh, we start with a splash page of them in hyperspace. And it's cool. Honestly, the splash page that we start with is it's cool, but it's probably, it's not as, as cool as it, as it, could be or should be it's just setting where we are this is the setting we're in the spaceship and the spaceship is in hyperspace and so here's the thing about carmen infantino he is the first artist who ever made me kind of see a style of art that was recognizable beyond house style when i was a kid um before reading a carmen infantino star wars comic which we'll get to the actual issue soon enough but anyway, his his characters, they sort of look like the people from the movie, but they had these angular faces and these angular bodies and the faces and the bodies and and even the tech and stuff was different from the Marvel house style from the comics that I had read, uh, like uh, Spider-Man and uh, Captain America Avengers and and cartoons I had seen on TV, mainly the <laughs> Spider-Man cartoon from what, 68, 67, whatever it was, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Um, with a, a more rounded superhero physique and, you know, more realistic buildings and that sort of thing. And, and so he was the first artist that I ever came in contact with, uh, where I recognized that this was someone choosing to not draw a hundred percent realistic. And I remember puzzling over this and looking at that comic book and we'll, like I said, we'll get to the actual issue, but, um, I remember just looking at it and trying to figure out, you know, is, that's Han Solo. That doesn't look like Han Solo, but it does look like Han Solo. And the way his jawbone was and everything like that. So here, you know, reading this takes me takes me right back to that. And and uh, that's not to say it doesn't work, but it is to say <laughs> you, it takes a little getting used to. And R2-D2 does not feel right because he's not proportioned. And since he's not human, you know, he's not even anything that we are used to in our world, except for maybe a garbage can or something like that. Um, it takes a little more getting used to when you're dealing with things that are not from our earth, where we would already be familiar with this. So I'm, I'm looking at humans and I'm willing to accept the stylistic choices. But then I look at R2D2, which I only know R2D2 uh, as, you know, this round character with a dome and, and then the other one is Chewbacca, man. Uh, he looks like just that funky Bigfoot. And, and the Stormtroopers, they have the stylized angular angularity. Sure, we'll go with that word. Um, but again, because they're wearing masks, it looks a little strange because it's, it's one fantasy representation of the world in the film being represented in another style. And it, it's, it just takes a little getting, getting used to. So the story itself uh, is, again, I, maybe I shouldn't be spoiling all this stuff, but it, it's good. It's a, it's a good story. Uh, it's a very simple story as far as what happens in this particular issue, but it's definitely setting up a whole bunch of stuff that's going to be happening later. Um, and we already had the setup with that hunter guy, that cyborg guy. Uh He's not in this and I'm waiting for him. I want him to come back. And and so now the place where they're going in this issue, 
I can totally see him just really fitting in nicely into the tone of, of the place where they're going to be. I don't know when he's going to come back, but I am excited to see him come back. But I'm also glad to see the team working together. In this story, we have Luke, Leia, Han, C-3PO, Chewie, R2-D2. They're all together on one ship. This is the kind of story I would have loved as a kid because I had the whole team together. And I had the whole team as action figures. And I didn't have the Millennium Falcon for a while. Uh, but I had other things that I used to be the Millennium Falcon or a ship like that where my team would all be together. And reading this comic just takes me back to those days when I was just loving the idea of this team of friends and you know waiting for the next movie to come along. Speaking of that Millennium Falcon that I didn't have, uh, my cousin had it. And when they moved to California, I got to buy that Millennium Falcon from him at his garage sale. And just, and I, as of the day that I'm recording this, we just got back from vacation two days ago, two days ago from this time I'm recording this, I had to throw it away. I was helping my mom clean out some stuff in her garage and I pulled out that Millennium Falcon and I looked at it and it was just, it was just broken. The canopy was missing, um, different pieces were missing and different plastic edges have been chipped off and, and I'm just looking at it and thinking my son can't play with this. He's going to cut himself on the plastic or pinch his finger in, you know, where the plastic isn't quite broken, but there's a crack there, you know? And I just looked at that thing and just remembered all the adventures that I had my action figures go on and all the time I spent just in my fantasy world. And I tossed it. I threw it away. I wasn't gonna be able to sell it. I wasn't going to make my my son play with it. There was no repairing it. It went in the garbage. Oh, that hurt. It hurt. But it had to happen. I had to let it go. So, anyway. <laughs> back to the story. The characters are all here. And they're acting like the characters from the movie. So, me reading this now. Yes, this is a very simple story. And yes, there's some logical things. Illogical things, I should say. That... You know, the story isn't a perfect story, but it definitely, definitely fits into the world, especially the world as established in just that first Star Wars movie. Uh, this this works really nicely. So as they're returning to Yavin, uh, C-3PO calls everyone to an emergency in uh, not the rec room, but the main area of, of the Millennium Falcon uh, because Luke has shut down, quote unquote. Uh, that's what C-3PO keeps saying. Han Solo keeps telling him to stop saying that. But Luke has shut down. Apparently, while practicing using the force, he stopped and was doing a meditation exercise. And that meditation exercise gave him a vision that really just terrified him and scared him unconscious. Now, we don't know what the vision is, just that something is coming. Something beyond among the stars uh, is out there. And it's coming, and who knows what it is. We won't, because Luke's unconscious. He can't tell anyone. Fortunately, R2-D2 happened to be recording the training session. And so R2-D2 was able to play it for everyone else so they could see what had happened. They now need medical help, and Han Solo knows what to do. And this is bringing us into some of that interplay where he is bickering with, with Princess Leia. And it's bickering that reminds me of Empire Strikes Back kind of bickering. But it's it's fun interplay. Uh, you know, he's 
he's saying we got to find some medical help. He says, nobody knows the ins and outs of this galaxy better than this spice smuggler. Uh, and uh, you've got nothing to worry about uh, your, your royalness. And then she's, well, why am I still worried? You know, and and then he comes out of hyperspace and he comes out in the wrong place. He's in the right uh, quadrant, I think it is. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we're in the right quadrant, but the wrong sector. <laughs> and that sector is really a bad place to be because there is um, an Imperial presence there. And uh, actually the TIE fighter that approaches them is Darth Vader's style of TIE fighter. And I'm thinking, oh, is this what Luke saw as Darth Vader on his way? But no, they actually blow it up then because that's what you do. Get them before they get you. But they know that there's others there and they need to get out of there. But then they come across this ship that's been destroyed and is just smoking and uh it's been attacked obviously very very recently um it's it's a private merchant ship and it's marked house of tag which uh this tag um i don't know anything about the house of tag i do know that uh the that comic book i was talking about earlier had a character named tag in it t-a-g-g-e and so that gets me a little excited. Oh, so we're, we're building toward the comic book that I had when I was a kid that I've been you know looking forward to. Anyway, the Imperials clearly did this. But then in the wreckage, they see a man alive, a body floating in the wreckage wearing rebel gear. And so they bring him aboard and he tells them that Imperials destroyed the ship and then planted these dead and dying rebel bodies as if they were part of the battle. And so we have a conspiracy now. And as they're considering this, uh, Star Destroyer closes in. And so Han makes a run for it. <laughs> they're very close to where they need to be, and they can possibly escape this Star Destroyer. Now on the Star Destroyer is a guy, his name is uh, Commander Strom. And he's bald. He's bald, and he's bad. And I think he's bald simply just so all these guys in these very similar uniforms, he's the one you can recognize as, as the, uh, the leader of our antagonists here, but they are headed toward this area. That's sanctuary for them. That is the wheel. And this place is a giant space station. And it's basically a casino. I'm going to go ahead and read what is written here about it in the captions. It's, um, but the picture of it is, it's something like, uh, like a giant space station with all these parking ports for these these small ships to get, you know, land there. Uh, and then it's a circle, it's a wheel, but it has these kind of building structures that are all along the inside rim of the wheel. And then there's also these larger portions that are connecting, you know, one side to the other. And that and kind of reminds me of a really nasty version of the circular um, station in 2001. So anyway, it says uh, its size makes it appear closer than it is, but the wheel's reputation does not rest on its size. There are other constructions in the galaxy larger, more awesome. The wheel is a monument, a monument to pleasure, to risk, to greed, and to those with the need or the desperation. It is also a monument to life and death. Now, the Imperials have created a sanctuary space where the wheel is. And that sanctuary space is an imperial courtesy. But Han Solo goes in thinking it's almost law 
you know, and it's not. And so Captain Strom, the the bad bald man, he is going to go after them anyway. He's going into this sanctuary area, and he is going to dock with the ship, and he's going to send his men, his stormtroopers, after these rebels. Now, the Millennium Falcon, they fly in hot, they land hot, they jump off the ship and run away from the ship before they do, you know, do any kind of registration or anything like that. And they leave the droids and Luke on the ship. And the reasoning isn't bad. Uh, let's see, the way Han Solo puts it is, um, you're a leader, you're a known leader of the Rebel Alliance with the Empire hot on our heels. Luke's much safer with these two anonymous droids. But it does cause a commotion because they didn't pay and then they, they left the ship almost immediately. And so they're going to go to the authorities. Well, the authorities are Senator Grayshade and a robot, a droid named Mastercom. And Grayshade gets in communication with Captain Strom. And he is against the Imperials coming and killing the rebels. Until he hears about how rebels destroyed that ship. Uh, now, look, obviously, the rebels didn't do it, but the House of Tag name changes his tune. And I looked a little bit around after I read this. I could not find any indication that he is of the House of Tag, but I'm pretty sure Grayshade is of the House of Tag. Anyway, now he's just fully uh, willing to compromise the whole sanctuary thing. And uh, so stormtroopers, they come in and they find C-3PO. They find R2-D2 and they find Luke. And they find them in the cover image. C-3PO is carrying Luke, trying to find help. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, I I guess that whole thing about him being strong enough, it's, you know, I, the cover is not representational. The, com- the cover is literal what is inside the story. Then Grayshade sees Leia on some camera images and realizes what he has in his hands right now is this catch. Now, Leia has already said uh, for us, the reader, and for Han Solo, that her father was against the construction of the station. And so it's clear Senator Grayshade, who still wants to go by Senator, even though the Senate has been dissolved, and even though he used his his position as Senator uh, in some dubious ways, he still wants to be called Senator. So clearly he has a history with Leia's father and knows who he has. And that's the end. And so we go from that to the next issue, the ultimate gamble. And again, this is a casino, so it makes sense. They'd have some ultimate gambles here if they're fighting for their lives. Bottom line for this issue, this is a good Star Wars story, especially considering the time that it was made where there is no EU expanded universe, or at least that's not a label. Anyway, all we had going for us after the Star Wars movie was Star Wars comics and Star Wars novels, which there weren't that many of, and Star Wars action figures in our own imagination. And so for me, it was mostly, you know, one or two comics, especially when I was this young. I didn't have any of these issues here uh, up until this point. And my imagination. And this, to me, is a great continuation of that first Star Wars movie, especially considering how much... Did they know what maybe they knew what was going to happen in the next Star Wars movie? And there were limitations put on them. They weren't allowed to kill off any main characters and they weren't allowed to have Darth Vader meet Luke Skywalker and fight him, you know, face to face. They could see each other. But anyway, 
this is a like I said, a great continuation. There's adventure, there's cool character interplay and fun and funny character interplay. The R2D2 C3PO stuff, not the greatest, but the Han Solo Princess Leia stuff, what little there is, it's fun. There's bad guys forcing dangerous situations out of our good guys. There's politics even and world building and world building for the purpose of story. You know, we got a new setting with the wheel. And we also have this political situation where the tax revenues from the wheel uh, fill the empire's coffers and, and gives the empire a lot of money to uh, to run the things they need to run and build the things they need to build. And then we end with our characters put in some no-win situations where Han Solo is running with Princess Leia toward uh, Grey Shade. At least I, I'm, I'm assuming they are. And he's ready to do some, you know, schemey bad stuff. And yeah, finally, though, stormtroopers, they really are hard to draw. <laughs> so I, I feel for Carmine Infantino. Stylistically, it works, but it just feels a little odd, a little off. Anyway, that is Star Wars issue number 18. That is also me back in the saddle with some new stuff, and I am excited to read. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next with The Human Fly, with Godzilla, all those things, um, but I'm excited about those as well. And so that's where we're going to go now. I think we're going to go to The Human Fly issue number 16. The cover of The Human Fly, issue number 16, with cover date of December 1978. Once again, heralds him as the wildest superhero ever. Because he's real! And the cover then shows him going over Niagara Falls with a jetpack and jet skis, and there's a child falling, and it says Niagara Nightmare, and there's a boat way down there to give us some perspective of just how high up in the air they are. And all I can think of is Superman 2 <laughs> because, well, in Superman 2, a kid falls into Niagara Falls and Clark Kent has to hurry and change into Superman so he can rescue the kid. Now, I don't know. I, I actually should probably look to find out because I, I don't know if this came out before or after Superman 2, but I'm thinking it's before because it is um, 1978. And let's see here. According to Mike's amazing world of comics, Human Fly, number 16, publisher, Marvel, cover date, December, on sale date, September 5th, 1978. And yeah, let's find out. When was Superman 2? Who came first, Human Fly or Superman? Superman 2... 1981. I thought so because I remember the media blitz behind Superman 2. Um, and I went and saw Superman 1 in theaters. And so, yeah, Human Fly was there first, rescuing kids who had fallen into Niagara Falls. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the kid that falls into the Niagara Falls, uh, he's he's not as stupid as the kid from Superman 2. Let's put it that way. But the situation is just about as stupid as Superman 2, um, as far as what the kid was doing. You know, Superman 2, the kid's like, hey, mom, look, I'm going to go climb over the fence and fall in. And um, that's 
you know, it's it's dumb. You know, like, I guess I could see a normal kid wanting to do that kind of thing, but in this situation, the kid is not the problem. The situation itself is the problem, and that's really the way it is for this whole entire comic book. And I just want to say, come on, man, put a little effort into the story. But yeah, there's not a lot of effort that gets put into the story. Just things happen. Um, first thing that happens is they're getting ready to do a stunt. And the stunt is they're going to take a plane uh, and they're going to use the plane to pull human fly on uh, his his uh, skis, his water skis, along toward the falls. And once he hits the falls, he's going to cut loose from the plane and he's going to glide out over the falls. And he's got a special thing that he's going to activate. And that's going to, you know, be the big end to the stunt. It's a jetpack, uh, just, just in case you're wondering. But then Blaze gets kidnapped. And Blaze is part of his stunt team. She's an important part. She'll be dry, she'll be piloting the plane. She gets kidnapped because there's bad guys who don't want them to do the stunt because the stunt is to help a hospital. A hospital that's on land that the bad guys want to develop into hotel space. And they put her on the phone when they make their um, you know, demands and they put her on the phone and she says, I'm in the most dangerous place, but I'm, I'm on the edge of death. Or Yeah, that's what she says. I'm on the edge of death. And he figures out that it's a house that's actually perched over Niagara Falls. And so he's going to use his glider to get in there and, and rescue her. And so the plane goes, he uses the glider, he drops in and rescues her. And I'm thinking, what about the kid falling into Niagara Falls? Well, that's the first half. The first half is the adventure and it ends with you know him rescuing Blaze, which is where you would think it would go. You think they do the stunt first, like normal, and then they'd you know he'd rescue Blaze and and that'd be be it. But no. They do all the kidnapping stuff first, and then he does the stunt. It's kind of anticlimactic because he's going along, and and you know the, there's the media is there. It's a frenzy. It's a media frenzy, <laughs> and it's a a bad thing for a kid in a wheelchair because as the camera people are moving their stuff around, a cable wraps around the wheel of a wheelchair and pushes him toward the fence, and the wheelchair topples, and he goes over the fence and falls into the falls and actually no i'm looking at it right here i had forgotten he actually went over in his chair i'm not sure exactly how that worked um looks like the fence is break yeah the fence broke so maybe yeah i don't know it's just kind of dumb and so human fly he's on his water skis he's about to go over the falls and he sees this happen and so he activates his jetpack a little bit early and flies around to rescue this child. And he grabs the child. And they're both going over the falls. Because the jetpack can't handle them both. And he uses his pimp cane to shoot the cable. And it catches on to the, you know, a beam. But he's, he's not strong enough to hold on. They, they go over the falls. But then he just uses the momentum of the falls. And his, his jetpack together. And he's able to boost. Get enough boost to get away from the falls and, and do a perfect landing on his jet skis and, and ski in to, to the land. And, and that's it. It's, it's really dumb. And, um, 
and the way it ends is he says, you know what? Uh, I saved him. And um, the stunt was a success because I saved the child. And now the press who caused this problem are going to apologize by making a donation to the hospital. I, <laughs> I'm laughing about it, but I'm not enjoying it. You know, I mean, there's some bad human flies that I've read where I've enjoyed it. And there's been some bad human flies I've read where I've not enjoyed it. And then there's been some human flies that I've read and I've actually thought, oh, this is good. I'm not laughing at it. I'm If I'm laughing, I'm laughing with it. But this is one where I don't even know. I don't even know what the process would have been on this. And it, it feels like, you know, we have Bill Mantlo doing the writing. We have Bob Lubbers as the artist and we have uh, Jim Shooter as the, the head honcho, but Bob Hall is the editor of this. And I just feel like Bob, Bob Hall maybe should have exerted more uh, editorial oversight on it because this one's a, a true, this is a legit stinker. I, I don't like being negative. Um, I'm enjoying having the human fly and I'm enjoying experiencing reading the human fly. But this one, you know, the only reason I am even doing this episode about it is to honestly, just because I'm indexing the whole entire thing. And already, I guess you could say I'm breaking my own rule that I laid down in the uh, the Swamp Things uh, episode that I did. But um, over there with that episode where I was talking about Swamp Monsters, I said, you know, if you're not having fun reading comics, you're doing it wrong. And I guess I am having fun. I mean, I'm talking about it and I'm laughing as I'm talking about it. But man, it's troubling. <laughs> it's troubling. So... That's the human fly issue number 16. Next, we're going to talk about some Godzilla and hopefully have a little more fun with that. But for now, the human fly. Oh, brother, <laughs> this story. It's not a story. It's like, I mean, it's two stories and one of them is not great. And the other one's not good. So there we are. So after the human fly. Uh, I need a, a palate cleanser and looking at the cover of Godzilla number 17, I think I just may have found that palate cleanser, oh, man, this cover. So the cover date is uh, December 1978 and the issue is number 17. We, of course, picked this up on our journey back in time to September 1978. The on sale date was September 5th, 1978. Cover price 35 cents. And if you look at this cover, you're thinking to yourself, if you're me anyway, it's worth the price. Because this time, the giant monster that we have our low angle looking up at is not Godzilla. Now, our low angle is looking up at Godzilla, but Godzilla is smaller than the monster, the monster that looms large. Now, there are two things that loom in the background. One is a guy in a trench coat with a butterfly net. The other is Rob talk, talk, uh, it's Rob and, uh, it's, it's our Kenny and they're both running toward this other largely looming figure that's crouching down and reaching out for our victim, Godzilla. 
And it's Dumb Dumb Dugan. Yes, on the cover of this comic book, you basically have Dumb Dumb Dugan taking the place of the monster, taking the place of the king of the monsters. And the king of the monsters is on the run from Dumb Dumb Dugan. Now, you know, on a normal cover, you might have Godzilla breathing fire. Uh, but our monster, he's not breathing fire. No, he's just got a cigar with a lot of smoke coming out of it. But he's reaching out for this tiny Godzilla, tiny G. That's what I'm going to call him uh, as we get to that point in the comic. But like I said, I look at this comic book and I think to myself, 35 cents, sign me up, hand it over, take my money. There's get This is going to be good. And the cover alone was a palate cleanser from Human Fly last segment. Now, we are going to get some weirdness. We are going to get some cheesiness. We are going to get just some kitsch, all right? And that's great. It is just what we need. And honestly, um, maybe I should save this for the end of the podcast, but this is set up for more kitsch and better kitsch. This is all set up for what's coming next, but it has to happen. It has to happen in order to get there. This is chapter one of another, you know, round of stories that aren't, you know, we, we've had, a, we had the two cowboy stories. We had the, uh, the trilogy with the monsters from outer space. Well, this is set up for another series. I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know how long this is going to go, but this is definitely set up for at least one more issue of genuine Godzilla shenanigans. That is right. GGS, genuine Godzilla shenanigans happening in this in this next issue. In this issue, there's Godzilla shenanigans, but it's not so genuine. <laughs> case in point, I mean, well, before we look at this, at this case in point, the scene one, let's talk about our credits because uh, Doug Mensch is the writer. The penciler is Herb Trimpey. I mean, it's, and, and the art honestly is, it's good. I mean, the art is good all the way around. Um, the anchor is Daniel green. The letterer is Bruce D Patterson and the colorist is Ben Sean. And of course I'm reading it, um, from my time machine, but I'm reading it in black and white, uh, in the essentials volume that Marvel comics printed. And I love this volume so much. I don't know. There's something about the black and white artwork for this. It doesn't bother me as much as when I read it and some other things. Um, yeah. Anyway, let's get into the story. You know, this is where, like I said, we're getting some Godzilla shenanigans, not necessarily genuine Godzilla shenanigans, because our first scene is basically Godzilla is grazing. Yes, he is grazing. He's just eating leaves off the top of trees. And then he stretches his arms and he lets out a mighty yawn and he lays down and takes a nap because he's very tired from the whole ordeal with the Cowboys and the cows and all that stuff. And I read this scene, I'm just thinking, what is this? You know, but here's what's cool about it. I mean, it's cheesy, yes. And that's setting us up for cheesiness. You know, this is not a bad thing. Now, if I'm a young reader, I'm reading this and it just is natural that Godzilla would take a nap. As an older reader, I'm reading this and I'm just thinking, well, you know, this is what the plot needs us to do. We need a sleeping Godzilla, which we'll find out why in, a, in just a few pages. But um, it, I mean, it is 
it's funny and cheesy to me because they actually just show Godzilla yawning and stretching. And honestly, it takes me back to the movies of the seventies. You know, it takes me back to when Godzilla was dancing, you know, and doing, um, dance moves as he's fighting, you know, other monsters or something. But yeah, <laughs> that's our opening scene. Now scene two has shield following up with the Cowboys from, from last issue. And we have the giant, what the, the giant, I think Le- Leviathan, uh, version of the helicarrier it's it's the one that you can put godzilla in if you w- wanted to um but scene three is where things well no it's not really where things start moving <laughs> it's it's not uh oh by the way it's not the the leviathan it's the behemoth you know I, I get the two mixed up they're both uh biblical monster terms so uh, i think you can understand why i might get it mixed up but you have rob you have jamie woo you have tamara and then you have uh, Hugh Howard's, yes, Hugh Howard's wearing a fedora, smoking a pipe with a loose tie. This, if he's nothing, this guy is definitely, um, I mean, it's, it's Howard Hughes, you know, and, and it's honestly, to me, it, it reminds me of Howard Stark, uh, from the movies. Now, Howard Stark from the movies and Agent Carter, the TV show came well after this, but um, Hugh Howard's he's, he's, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, he's there. He's in this issue and he's trying to figure out why Rob is feeling so down. Rob is feeling so down that he doesn't even want to go and mess with the controls of the helicarrier. And really Rob is feeling down because he, he's not going to be able to be the Kenny anymore. I mean, at least he doesn't think he's going to be the Kenny anymore. We're, we're, sh- I'm sure we're going to get more of him as the Kenny. And what is the Kenny? Well, that's the annoying kid who has some sort of connection with the monster and it's named after a kid from the Gamera series. Um, and I, I don't know who coined the phrase of just calling the kid, the Kenny, but for me, I didn't coin it for myself. I got it from mystery science theater 3000, the Gamera series, which is one of the most awesome DVD sets that I own. It's the only Mr. Science Theater 3000 series uh, or DVDs that I own. And it comes from the Gamera set that they did. So anyway, um, awesome set. Check it out. Definitely check it out. Mr. Science Theater and Gamera were made for each other. So anyway, he's upset because he just wants to sit at the controls of Red Ronin again. And so he's all mopey and he's just... He's acting like, you know, a young teen should and a young teen would be upset because he can't do what he wants to do, you know, but it's not because he wants to date someone. It's not because he wants to take the car out. It's not because his parents won't let him go to the concert. No, it's because S.H.I.E.L.D. won't let him drive the multi-million dollar, enormous skyscraper sized robot anymore, (laughs) you know, so he he's just mopey moping along and you know, his sister doesn't know what to do about it. Howard Hughes doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, Jimmy Woo doesn't know what to do about it. And they're saying, no, it's going to be okay. Cause we're going to fix red Ronin. And you know, the, the, cause he, I mean, there's two things stopping him from running red Ronin. One thing that's stopping him from running red Ronin is it's nearly destroyed. The other thing is that they will never let him ever drive this thing again. And this is what they should be doing, not letting him. And, they say it'll be fixed. Stark Technologies, they'll take care of things. And he says, yeah, and once it's fixed, they're not going to let me combine with it ever again. I have a mental connection with this thing. And Jimmy Woo doesn't answer. And then he turns to 
Rob's sister, Tamara, and says, I wanted to tell him something else. I didn't want to say that, you know, I, I wanted to give him an answer, but I, I didn't give him an answer. I couldn't because I couldn't lie to him. You know, that's good. That's good. But Tamara says, well, he's just too old for his age. And, you know, it's like the opposite of boys will be boys, I guess. But, I mean, come on. I, I mean, I understand Rob moping and everything. Uh, you know, and he's addicted. He 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 drifted to to coin the or to take the phrase from Pacific Rim. He he drifted with with Red Ronin. There was a connection there, but Red Ronin is a mindless automaton. I mean, it needs a driver. I don't know how he connected with it if there's nothing to connect with. It's like me really connecting with my MacBook or me really connecting with my VCR or, you know, <laughs> it's not real. I do know people who connect with their cars. In fact, now that I mention it, my car, um, we named our van Silver Surfer and we named my car Red Ronin, but I don't connect with it like that. Some people do. Some people do. And that's where some road rage comes from. You get into a fender bender with someone who is in love with their car and, you know, look out because you have just assaulted a part of them. So I don't know. Maybe there's more to this whole Rob being addicted, connected to Red Ronin thing, but it's just kind of, it's not the right kind of cheese for me. So scene four, our team, our shield team is visited by Dr. Gladstone Hawkins, a noted paleontologist who wants to study Godzilla and Dugan, you know, Dugan no longer wants to kill the beast. And so he makes sure, do you want to study it or do you want to kill it? And Gladstone Hawkins does not want to kill it. He wants to study it. I mean, he wants to learn. He wants to learn. And they talk about this whole problem they have. And Gabe just happens to say something like, if he wasn't so big, if only he wasn't so big. And that gives Dugan an idea. So Dum Dum Dugan sends Gabe to New York City while Dugan and the others go to find the big G. In scene five, Godzilla was easy to find. Now he's still napping. And they want to creep up closely with their uh, helicarrier, make sure they don't wake him up uh, until Gabe gets back. And when Gabe gets back from his mission, now they're going to wake him up. So they're coming in real quiet with their helicarrier. And then they have Rob go up on the helicarrier and yell out to Godzilla, hey, wake up. Wake up, Godzilla. It's me. I'm here. And so Godzilla doesn't wake up because there's a helicarrier hovering over his head. No, he wakes up because there's a child yelling at him from the deck of the helicarrier hovering over his head. Now, the way that they try and portray it is that it's a familiar voice, a tiny sound that's a familiar voice, but it's a little funny. And uh, But Godzilla recognizes the voice, and since Godzilla is friend to all children – wait, no, that's Gamera. Gamera is friend to all children, but Godzilla is friend to – Rob, uh, Godzilla wakes up. Godzilla stands up. Godzilla gets closer to the helicarrier. Uh, the, the captions say, can a monster smile? Does Godzilla smile now? Perhaps. But then you turn the page, and this is actually kind of nice, and I feel a little bit bad for both Rob and for Godzilla because at this point, uh, there's treachery. S.H.I.E.L.D. attacks and they have used Rob to get Godzilla to come in closer. 
and they attack. Now, how do they attack? They attack by spraying gas into Godzilla's mouth. And this, this is a special gas uh, from a certain Dr. Henry Pym. This is a gas that is laced with Pym particles, reducing gas. They're shrinking him. Now, obviously, we knew from the cover that this was going to happen. But I love, love, love that Iron Man gets involved with creating this giant suit of armor. And you have um, Ant-Man get involved with shrinking Godzilla down. It's great. And it's kind of funny because then the the fight scene that happens after this, it kind of gets into that the whole idea of the cover where you have uh, Dugan towering over Godzilla. But Godzilla grabs Dum Dum Dugan. But before he can hurt Dum Dum Dugan, he starts to shrink. And he shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. It's not real fast because everyone's nervous that Dum Dum Dugan is going to get hurt by this. But um, shrinks and shrinks until... Uh, he's small enough that he tries to get away from Dum Dum Dugan and Dum Dum Dugan captures him by grabbing him by the tail. And it's kind of fun. It's kind of cheesy. It's kind of, okay. It's not kind of cheesy. It's cheesy. Uh, the only thing Godzilla is able to do is he bites Gabe's hand, and, but doesn't do much damage because he's so small and they catch him, uh, it's that Dr. Hawkins catches him with a giant butterfly net and he is caught and when they walk away the the paleontologist actually um like he slings the 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 net the stick of the net over his shoulder and just has godzilla hanging behind him and rob at this point is trying to um convince godzilla he'll be all right and then we get the captions the next issue caption uh first it says you'll be all right godzilla i promise and then the caption says but that remains for the future to decide and it says next issue entering not as the conquering king but merely as a diminutive specimen godzilla nevertheless fights back in new york (laughs) so we are going to get godzilla in new york but it is tiny g who will be there not the big g and (sighs) sophisticated no no Not at all. Mature adult entertainment? No. No, not in the sense of what comics say, but also not in the sense of what I would say is a definition of mature adult entertainment, where it's just, you know, made for adults to uh, enjoy and think about and ruminate over. No. No, it's not. This is just trying to catch a monster and get a clever idea and then following through with it to set up some problems that are going to happen next issue. And I enjoyed it so much. It is so fun to have this kind of thing. And, you know, there are so many serious things that I deal with uh, in my job. Uh, There are so many serious things that, that we just deal with in general in the world. And, yes, I know Godzilla started out as a commentary on one of the worst tragedies in human history. Not the worst tragedy. I mean, I don't know what, what I would consider to be the worst tragedy, but it's definitely one of them. And sometimes it becomes commentary on bad, bad things that are going on around us in our world. But it's also Godzilla is also an escape. And if you're not watching those episodes of, of the movie series where it is this heavy handed um, think about 
global warming or think about this or that or the other thing or, you know, smog and, and pollution. Even then, sometimes it's just cheesy fun. And sometimes it's nice to have just cheesy fun. And, you know, my new phrasing that I've been using, and, and I, I think it's the, there's some truth to it. I don't know if it's the perfect phrase, okay? And it's not something that I'm going to use to judge people by. But honestly, you know, if you're not having fun reading your comics, you're doing it wrong. And that's not to say, I mean, even looking at the Godzilla movies, you know, I have fun watching the original Godzilla because of what it is and the statements it's making. And, you know, as I try and understand, you know, what is it trying to say and all these things, it's not fun to watch reenactments of the tragedy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's not the fun part. The fun part is that you're affected by it. And... So even watching a super heavy movie or reading, you know, blankets or something where it's a, you know, a comic book or a graphic novel, Mouse is another example. Mouse is an example of, yeah, when I read it, I'm not having fun reading it, but it is affecting me and it ends up being a positive experience. If you're reading comics and the comics you're reading, you're just like, oh, oh, this is dumb, but why I'm going to continue buying it. And I'm kind of doing that with man thing, honestly. I, I am. I totally admit it. I've just bought issue four. I'm not enjoying it, but I'm buying it just as a completion. Um, but I do kind of look at um, Rob Kelly, and I'm not sure exactly. It's been a while now since I've listened to the Fire and Water podcast. But Rob Kelly stopped reading uh, new Aquaman stories for a while. He may have gotten back into it. I'm not sure. But I do know when he stopped, uh, I, I look at that and I say to myself, you know what? It's cool. It's cool that he's not talking about modern Aquaman stories that, and he doesn't feel obligated to, to do so just because he's the Aquaman fan. Um, so anyway, that's, that's where I'm coming from. This was nice. This was fun. Now human fly. Yeah. I'm not having fun so much, but I am having fun being tortured by it. I don't know if that, Oh, that's, that makes me sound like some sort of freak. I am not a freak. Um, the badness of it is enjoyable. Uh, talking about it is fun because there is still some stuff to it, even as it's bad. But uh, yeah, definitely Godzilla here was a lot of fun. So next issue, can't wait to see what happens. I mean, I've seen what happens. I've read what happens. I just don't remember exactly what happens. I know we've got some stuff coming up where he's going to guest star with some characters that we've been talking about. And I know that we're going to get some stuff where he is just having um, there's, there's going to be some gratuitous uh, superhero cameos. But yeah, so that's that with Godzilla. So next we're going to be taking a look under the sea with another Peter Benchley related uh, story. In 1975, Universal released a movie that changed movies. Uh, the first real big giant blockbuster um, with the huge uh, opening weekend and stuff like that. And it was also a big first because this was Steven Spielberg's real big first hit. And it's it's really one of those amazing things where, I mean, it made lots and lots of money, but it's 
it's a classic and it's a classic for many different reasons from the music to the direction to the acting to the mechanical failures of the shark that caused it to be more suspenseful because they couldn't show the shark as much as they intended to. And so they worked around those, um, those limitations of, of what the shark could actually do. And, you know, honestly, I mean, art thrives on limitations and when you have these limitations where you have to figure out, okay, so what can we do instead? This was our original plan. We can't do that. What are we going to do instead? You start thinking in different ways, and it's a lot of fun creatively. Uh, now, I imagine that they weren't having quite as much fun as what I'm describing. When I'm involved in a situation like that, you know, the thing that's on the line is maybe a deadline. Uh, more, more likely, the thing that's on the line is, okay, we can't build this Lego thing. Can we build something different? And we end up with a spaceship instead of a pirate ship with my son. So, I mean, there, there's differences in, you know, scale, but I think creativity and art thrives under pressure and thrives under having limitations imposed on it because your brain gets thinking in different ways. Anyway, that's that's for free. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Jaws, but it's for free. So Jaws, successful, big money maker, and huge hit around the world. And so, you know, you would almost say, well, naturally, there would be a sequel. That wasn't always the case, especially back then. Now you would say definitely, naturally, there's going to be a, success, a sequel. That's why we have Transformers 5, which was so bad, so, 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 so bad. And it's still like, I'm still reeling um, from the pain that that movie brought upon me, but it's also what we have Jaws for, I guess. But uh, back then, you know, this wasn't quite the same uh, environment, but they did decide to make a sequel. The sequel was released in uh, in 1978, and it was Jaws two. It was not directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, he didn't want anything to do with it, from what I understand, because he'd been there. And he'd done that. Now, he he wasn't against making sequels. I mean, he made four Indiana Jones movies. But in this case, he just wasn't interested in going there. So they brought in a whole new creative team. And we get Jaws 2. Now, I don't think Jaws 2 is a bad movie. I think it's actually a pretty good follow-up to, to Jaws. And we're going to talk a little bit more about obviously the the details of the movie and of the the uh comic book that, that they used to adapt it but it's you know honestly um i like shark movies in general and i think i'm not quite as much of a fan with shark movies as i am with say swamp monsters you know but um the idea of the shark for me is that this is a real thing and it you know it's uncontrollable, like nature. It's uncontrollable. We can't do anything about it. It's just there. And ultimately, you know, you can use technology, I guess, but uh, to to defeat such, you know, something that's coming after you like a shark. But if you're out on the water, you are out of your environment and you are in something else's environment. And, in, you know, if you are in a shark's environment, then there's danger, not hundred percent certain guarantee that you're going to be attacked by a shark, but you know, there is the possibility and the shark is made for its environment and we are not made for the shark's environment. And that's what makes, you know, shark movies scary. It makes jaws scary. It makes jaws too 
scary. There's some tense moments in, in the movie in, in Jaws 2. Um, Jaws 3 and Jaws the Revenge, the less said about them, the better right now. There is definitely reason to talk about them in a conversation about Jaws. And, you know, speaking of a conversation about Jaws, my other podcast, Strangers and Aliens, uh, we did an episode where we explored the fake, uh, fake trailer that Universal released that went along with, uh, Back to the Future 2, where they go into the, uh, the future and see, you know, Jaws, I don't remember, 12 or 10 or something like that. But, um, they did this fake trailer and it was really, really funny. And it just kind of the, the trailer itself goes through like 19 Jaws movies. And so we did a podcast episode on Strangers and Aliens. It was episode number 165, where we pretend that it's a, an episode from a universe where all 19 of those Jaws movies were made. And so we, we talked about Jaws through Jaws, the revenge. And then um, we talked through. And and, he, and just gave this false history, just building on what they were already saying uh, with with that trailer and talking about reboots and the, you know, what I what I was kind of surprised to find out was that when I was watching some extras on the Jaws 2 DVDs, that some of the things that we were making fun of and having fun with um they had planned on doing or they thought about doing like doing a movie that was actually a flashback to um, the, the USS Indianapolis. Now that's not the route they took with Jaws two with Jaws two. They stuck with the Brody family. And I think that's definitely the right way to go uh, in part three and part four, maybe not quite the right way to go, but I do like it when there's continuity between sequels and it's not just here's a sequel that's a sequel because it's a similar situation or here's a sequel that's a sequel because it also has a shark. Uh, I'm glad they didn't do that. I'm glad they stuck with the Brody family, especially for this movie. Now, Jaws 2 has a special place for me because I actually up until hmm, probably college, maybe even a little bit after college, uh, I'd seen Jaws 2 more than I'd seen the original because Jaws 2 played on Saturday afternoon movies uh, on one of my local uh, syndicated channels uh, when I was growing up. And my friend, Mike, from uh, from uh, seventh grade. Yeah, would have been would have been grade seven. Uh, he he loved the Jaws movies. And so he told me about it and then I was watching for it. And so I had seen Jaws and Jaws 2 on TV, but Jaws 2 was the one that got more rotation. And I actually remember writing short stories about like all the kids in my class going on a class trip to the beach and getting eaten by sharks. And I had to save them. Of course, it was me and my friend, Mike, we were, we were saving the kids and you know, it was uh, what do you, what do you call it? A, I guess the adolescent power fantasy or whatever, where I, I, defeat the shark as you know bullies get eaten and girls fall in love with me and yeah so middle school you know you're a nerdy middle school kid what do you do that's what you do i'm not saying it's right I'm not saying it's wrong just saying it is and it's probably not right but anyway um so anyway uh <laughs> jaws was a part of uh, my adolescence, uh, not necessarily my childhood, but Jaws 2 was a part of it. And there were certain I, I don't remember really even seeing the beginning. It was always kind of a coming at, at the middle at some point in the middle. And no matter what, though, I'd stay to the end so I could see that finale, the t the point in, in the movie where Brody kills the shark. 
The other thing I had with Jaws 2 was I actually had a handful, maybe two, three. I don't think I had more than three or four uh, Jaws 2 trading cards. And um, this was when I was little. I mean, I, 1978, I'm four years old. Um, so I, I'm not seeing Jaws 2 <laughs> in the theater for sure. But... I had these cards and I remember one was of Brody on the beach with his gun out from that scene. And, and there was, that's really the only one I remember. I just remember there was a couple cards and I don't know where I got it. I don't know how I got it. I don't know why I got it, but I had it. And so, um, yeah, Jaws two was, I guess it was a part of my childhood, but anyway, uh, Jaws two is, one of those sequels though, where it's not, it's not better than the original, but it holds up with the original. It makes a decent, um, double feature when you watch both of those movies together. It, it carries on with some, uh, emotional beats with the main character of chief Brody. And it allows us to see consequences from the previous movie. And I, I think I think it holds up as a, as a decent double feature. Again, we're not going to talk about three. We're not going to talk about the revenge, not in this conversation. So let's talk about this comic though. This was a Marvel super special magazine size. There's a dollar 50 cover price on it. Um, on sale date was September 26, 1978, according to Mike's amazing world. And it was a magazine, not a comic book. Uh, the cover is reminiscent of the Jaws posters, which have this shark looming below or behind an unsuspecting female victim. Uh, for Jaws, that's the, the poster that you've you no doubt seen, where the shark is coming up toward the swimming lady. Uh, Jaws 2, the poster that they did, was a water skiing lady who has a shark coming up behind her. And for the Jaws 2 magazine for the Marvel super special. There's a shark coming up behind a woman who is very much aware of what is about to happen. It is an enormous shark mouth that is looks like it could honestly swallow her whole. It's not going to swallow her whole. It is going to chomp her in half with those mighty powerful jaws. She is terrified as she is trying to swim away, but to no avail. So that's, that's the cover. Um, the artwork is by Gene Colan, which, uh, you know, I say that and instantly uh, people who are listening right now are saying to themselves, wow, it must be amazing. And the short answer to what you just said is, yes, it is amazing. Uh, the anchor and color were uh, Tom Palmer. The letter is Irving Watanabe. And the writer is Richard E. Marshall. And I am not familiar with Richard E. Marshall, uh, a look at his credits on Mike's Amazing World shows that he worked on two other comics for Marvel uh, as a writer. So I don't know much more about him. Um, but I will say this. He does an a decent job. A decent job. We'll get into some details here in a moment. But the other thing this uh, this magazine is notable for is the Marvel color or Marvel super color or something like that. But it's a color process that allows them to use these painted pages. And it just looks gorgeous. Honestly, it just looks 
gorgeous. There are some panels in this magazine that could just be a standalone poster just in the magazine. Now, the artist of the cover is Bob Larkin. It's not uh, Gene Colan. But Gene Colan does the interior artwork, and it, it's wonderful. The, the cover art is good. It's very, very good. And, you know, it's the, sh- it, the shark is that iconic look of the shark that now gets parodied all over the place. And, you know, the woman's uh, face, I mean, she's just, it's just abject terror on her face as the shark is, you know, she just knows the inevitable is about to happen. And there is nothing she can do about it. Not a single thing. Which, again, like I was talking about, that's that's the deal. That's what makes shark attacks so scary. And what, you know, in my favorite film, uh, horror movies or whatever, Jaws is way up there alongside with, with Alien. And the difference with Alien is that it is completely alien, obviously. But with, with Jaws, it is not alien. It is not of our world, but it is a thing that is not alien. Instead, it is a real thing and uh just for the record shark movies where they make the shark you know a super shark like deep blue sea and deep blue sea works for what it is um i do like the movie orca as well uh i'm not gonna talk more much more about orca here other than to say um the boat that went down that we opened the story with is the boat from the first movie the orca and there is a dead orca in this movie that was killed in a battle with a shark. So for what it's worth, the Orca movie, which came out as a, I think a cash grab, it's not a complete and utter uh, copy, which they did a decent job of trying to make this, make Orca a different movie. Orca is between, you know, a conflict between a mammal and another mammal. And both mammals are out for revenge. It's just that one of them is, a killer whale and the other is a human. Uh, they do some decent stuff with, you know, making it so it's just not a clone. But I, I do wonder if that orca laying there on the beach, I haven't watched any of the special, I haven't watched the, uh, I watched the special features, but I haven't watched the uh, director's commentary to find out if the orca on the beach is Jaws 2 saying, we, we're going to crush your little movie about the mammal. You know, but if, if it's not, then they, I, I just, I just, I, maybe I don't want to watch the director's commentary because I want to believe that it is, <laughs> that it is them saying that and doing that. But, um, yeah. So all that said, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the story here. Uh, in the town of Amity, it's three years later, and they're still trying to recover economically from all of the hits that the tourist industry took from the shark attacks of the first movie. They're they're raising money and they're trying to get um you know, like a new hotel and they're trying to get investors in the town and that kind of thing. But chief Brody is haunted by those ghosts of the past. And he thinks that there's these disappearances that have been happening. And he thinks a a shark is uh, the cause of this. And it, it turns out there is a shark that's causing all these people to disappear and boats to explode. And this leads to a showdown and it's not just the town's economic viability that's at stake. It's Chief Brody's own family. And that's what makes this movie work. That's what makes any monster movie work is you have human characters who are affected by the monster. The monster is just one more thing that is intruding in 
and it's coming from the outside and causing trouble for the people's lives, but they're also living real lives, or at least you, you have the illusion of that in the movie that they're living real lives. That's what makes a monster movie work. When I watch a Godzilla movie, the best of them are Godzilla movies where you have human characters that are actually doing something that has stakes and that, um, you know, they they actually want to do something and they actually uh, are motivated and not just, Oh, pointing at the monster. How do we stop it? But there's, there's other things, there's personal things going on. And that's what I like about jaws too. That's, that's, I think that's the thing for me. It's chief Brody that saves jaws too. And that, that makes jaws too worth watching is because you're watching him have to deal with all these things that are going around him. Now there's, here's the conflicts that are going on. The primary conflict of this movie of this, and this comic is that there's a teenager who wants to boat with other teenagers and make out with girls, but his parents won't let him because of sharks. And it was interesting. I did one of the special features that I did watch. They were talking to the director and the director was talking about, um, racing culture and, and the, uh, the drag racing culture of teenagers. And actually the thing that was caught in like George Lucas's, uh, American graffiti, but, that that conflict is totally here and it's just this boating uh teen culture where they're going out and they're just boating around and they're they're racing each other and they're um going to make out point but make out point is like the lighthouse island and stuff like that and so that's a primary conflict and that totally feeds into the monster conflict because he you know the teenager wants to be in the place where the monster is and the parents don't want him to go because they know the monster is out there. So moral of the story, listen to your parents. Um, they know what they're talking about and they just want to keep you safe. So there's that. The secondary conflict is that everyone thinks Brody's crazy because, you know, he's a hero, but at the same time, he's obsessed with sharks. It seems like he's seeing sharks everywhere and every boating accident or every missing diver. And, that that's the other conflict. And so in the last movie, you know, they were concerned about shutting down the beaches because of the loss of money for tourist season. And the conflict there was, you know, we need to, we need to stop the shark. There's a shark and we need to stop it. And now the conflict is there's a shark and no one will believe him that there's a shark. They just think he's, he's crazy. They actually end up firing him from his job uh, because they just don't have confidence in him. And he brings them this photo, this photographic proof that there's a shark out there. And in the photo, you can barely tell. But anyway, um, in reading this magazine, in reading this adaptation, the artwork, like I said, is is incredible. Now, the shark looks great and is menacing. It's a menacing monster. Uh, I did notice that it kind of changes scale a little bit depending on the scene. Sometimes it's a little bigger uh, in relation to like the boats and stuff. The other thing with the art is it's gruesome. It is gruesome. It is far more gruesome than the movie that we got. If this comic book was the movie, then it probably wouldn't have been a PG because I mean, limbs are being torn apart and, you know, there you can see the torn limbs just floating in the water, and there's these streams of blood just pouring out of the you know the shark's mouth, but also out of the bodies. The movie itself is a very bloodless 
movie, uh, all things considered, com- compared to you know almost any shark movie, really. Um, and that was again something I, I heard them talk about in the, the extra feature was they they had to keep it as a PG movie so they could keep the audience that they had had, and they didn't want to lose the kid audience that parents would actually bring to a movie like that because if if it had been rated R, they would have cut out that entire range of ticket sales. Something that I found interesting also about this magazine was that there were some typos in the text. And what what I found interesting about these typos was that they are the kind that aren't caught by a spell checker. They're the kind that if I was texting or if I was typing a Microsoft word, they wouldn't have been caught by the spell checker. So you wouldn't have got the red line. You wouldn't have got the green line. Now, maybe if your spell check is really, really good, you might have gotten the green line to check and see uh, for one of them. But one of them was where um, he uh, Brody is investigating uh, missing divers. They're looking at the boat that's abandoned and they find um, some pills. And he says, I'm going to send this to the examiner to see if it's, you know, see what it is. And the guy he's talking to says, don't brother. Um, and I think he's supposed to say, don't bother because then he goes on to say, I know what those pills are. I know these kids and they're, you know, the trouble or whatever, but he, he says, don't brother. And I don't think he's meant to be saying like, don't brother, you know, in the, say the Hulk Hogan sense or the, um, uh, church family sense. It's, uh, but that's not one that would have gotten caught by a spell checker. Now, obviously, they weren't using spell checkers. I just find it interesting that these weren't caught by the editors. Uh, they weren't caught by the letterer and they weren't caught by the writer and they weren't caught by whoever edited the book to see, you know, that it said don't brother instead of don't bother. The other one was um, the mayor is on the beach and he's calling up to Brody, who's up in a watchtower. Uh, with um, binoculars and he calls up to him and says, what are you looking from? And I think the question meant to be, what are you looking for? Now the answer is obvious to both of those questions. What are you looking for? The mayor knows what he's looking for. What are you looking from? The mayor can see what he's looking from. So I just, I, I found it interesting that these kind of typos were in, this they were the only ones that I found, um, but they're the kind of typos that wouldn't have been caught on my spell checker writing today uh, without an editor looking over it and saying, "Hey, you missed this one because there's no little squiggly line." So, uh, <laughs> another interesting thing from the writing was there was a lot of exposition. Um, I, I mean, a lot of exposition that's explaining what's going on. Uh, one of the th- <laughs> One bit of exposition that stuck out to me was it says uh, arriving Brody's arriving home from his inquiry and he is met by his sons, Sean and Mike, and by Andy, quote, the neighborhood fat kid. (laughs) Yeah, it's a different time, you know, but I just found it interesting that that was the not just sole descriptor, but sole description that you get of this of this neighborhood fat kid. Now he's not as that fat in the movie, but um, yeah, the, the exposition is there to help explain the story, but there are still some transitions that are very abrupt with little establishing what's going on. And I think that's my one nitpick is that as good as the artwork is um, 
there are there are some moments where the transition is just jarring and abrupt. But uh, you know, scene by scene, it works better than some um, uh, other adaptations I've read, even with the lack of effective transitions, because this really doesn't feel that cramped. Now, the beginning has a whole lot going on. The first half has a whole lot of things to get through. Uh, and I read it before I rewatched the movie because I didn't, I wanted to read it and experience it as a comic book as, as purely as possible and then watch the movie. But both the comic book and the movie do this where there's a lot going on in the first half, but it allows the second half. You've established all the characters. You've established these teenage characters that are going to be put in danger. You've established, um, Brody and his connection. He has two sons who are out on the water. Uh, and who are in danger with the shark. And so then that allows to build the suspense during the second half where you see, I mean, it, it's, it's a, it's a slasher movie in, in a lot of ways where you have a group of teens and they're just being taken, taken down one by one by one. Uh, the other thing that I remember from watching the movie is the climax, which uses um, the natural terrain of the ocean that they're in to uh, create a a natural solution to their problem in the climax and in the comic book they and i made note of this and then i also when i watched the movie they did it in the movie but it was more natural i think because you have panning cameras uh in the comic book three times you get Chekhov's electric cable and three times they make sure to show this is a place that we are nearby. So there may be lack of establishment and establishing shots in the comic book adaptation whenever they make a transition from one scene to the next, but they sure do establish the environment that we are in and the geography of things. So, uh, another interesting little bit, um, when the orca washes up on the shore and they're investigating it, uh, there's this three panel uh, exposition where Brody is trying to figure out what did this to the orca. And he, he's questioning a scientist about this. And the scientist says, I don't think sharks, if this was a shark attack can transmute any emotions like revenge. Most likely a shark 10 miles out did the job in a dead way. And the dead whale floated in sharks like mammals. Here are our shark chartings. None too close to shore. We try to track them because they produce an antibody that fights cancer. They can save human lives someday. And then Brody replies, that's a switch. Well, that conversation kind of happens in the movie in Jaws 2 in a very different way. I am so glad that is in a different way because it's probably the most unscientific thing uh, of the, the whole bit here is, is just this exposition about what, you know, Sharks like mammals and here's our shark chart, shark chartings. And it just feels really unrealistic. Maybe it's real. I, I haven't looked into it to find out what shark charting was like in the late seventies. Um, you know, Peter Benchley, I uh, did write a book about sharks beyond jaws to try and make up for the way that he caused people to hate sharks in jaws. And maybe I should read that or something and, and see if this is actually based on, uh, some reality, but the, the scientists they bring in or the consultant that they bring in, uh, about sharks to investigate the orca in the movie is much better, much better scene, uh, much more natural dialogue. And it just felt like a much better scene. I do think that this comic is based on 
if not the early draft, a early draft. I know that there was a rewrite when they brought in a different director and he didn't like the the screenplay that they had. And it was really interesting the way they went about it is they kind of figured out what were going to be the big action set pieces. And they did those scenes first while they had a screenwriter rewrite the script to get all the family stuff and the personal stuff. And, and the, um, it, it's very interesting. And those kind of things really interest me to see how things are constructed. And a lot of times a movie like this, you, you see all the things that they're going up against and the movie shouldn't have happened. You know, it shouldn't have even gotten finished. Um, Wizard of Oz is a movie where I just look at it and just think, you know, reading what I've read about the making of that movie, that movie should not be a classic. That movie should be just terrible. And no one should be watching it again based on what it went through to get made. But instead, with all the different people who had their input, with all the different producers and all the different uh, creative people who are working on it, uh, and all the different setbacks they had, it, it is. It's a classic. It's a masterpiece. I, I love that movie, Wizard of Oz. So the same thing is here is kind of going through all their problems they were having. It shouldn't be as good as it is, uh, honestly. And... The comic book itself, you know, it's a pretty, pretty good adaptation. It's different. It is definitely different. Like I said, those attacks are gruesome. You have limbs falling off and blood and everything like that. Um, but it looks good. It looks good. And I just, I don't know. There's just something about the final half of the movie, Act 3 especially, like once you get into the, what, you, what I would consider Act 3 anyway. Uh, and it's just the teens surviving versus a shark. Now, in the comic, a lot of that stuff really works well. The one thing that doesn't work well in the comic is the helicopter versus the shark. Uh, just it just doesn't it just doesn't do anything for me. I was anticipating that panel. What is this panel going to look like when we get to it? Because I remembered the finale with Chief Brody, and I remembered the helicopter thing. Um, but it ended up being disappointing because it wasn't a sequence. It was just kind of a, a couple panels on one kind of splash panel and then a couple other panels that it, it just it just wasn't as prominent as as I would have liked to it to have been so yeah so that's jaws 2 the the magazine and uh it's fun to have these come up and I always try and watch the movie uh and so what's what's also kind of fun here is with jaws 2 it's actually a return of peter benchley uh, Peter eventually didn't write Jaws 2, but he wrote Jaws, the original, and this movie uh, gives him credit for creating the characters and you know creating that original situation. But it's also returned for Steven Spielberg, this you know with the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and um, yeah, I, I think it's fun to do these one-shot movie things. I, I enjoy doing it as a part of the coverage here. And so I'll continue. There's a couple coming up where I'm not sure how I'll get the movie, and then there's some coming up. Well, Star Wars, obviously, like The Empire Strikes Back and that kind of thing. But there's some coming up later on that I have seen so many times. And it'll just be one more. I'll, I'll probably just watch it one more time because, hey, it's for the podcast, you know, it's for the podcast. So uh, for our next segment, we'll be switching gears a little bit, moving from the oceans to the sands of Mars with John Carter. Issue number 19.
So this issue is uh, on sale date of September 26, 1978, same day as Jaws 2 from our Marvel Super Special number six episode, last, uh, the last uh, segment that we did with the Marvel's Cosmic Comics. The other thing that's uh, interesting is I kept being, uh, I, I kept getting mixed up and wanting to say that the artist of that book was uh, Ernie Colon. It was not Ernie Colon, it was Gene Colon. And I don't know if they say their names the same way, but it kept getting mixed up. But for this issue of John Carter, World of Mars, issue number 19, Ernie Colon is the artist. And I don't know if that's why I kept getting it mixed up or just because my brain is a jumble right now. And it is quite possible that it is because my brain is a jumble right now. It really is a jumble. right? I don't know. Uh, that's enough about my brain being a jumble right now. But if any words come out weird, that's why. It's because my brain is a jumble right now. So, um this uh, issue was written by Chris Claremont and penciled by Ernie Colon, as I mentioned. Frank Springer is the inker, Clem Robbins the letterer, Roger Stern the editor, Bob Sharon the colorist, and Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. And I just want to say right now that there's some unfortunate artwork in this. I really, I don't know if this is Ernie at fault or if this is Frank at fault or if this is, I'm just calling them by their first names as if, you know, I'm, I'm their peer or something, but... um there's real problems with the artwork and it, it might not be either of them. It might just be, they just don't mix and they just aren't jiving on this one. Um, it's especially with the male characters that there's the, the bodies and the uh, proportions of, you know, legs and arms and torsos and heads and necks and stuff. Just, it just doesn't work for me. And now for the women, there's maybe more time being spent or maybe it's because there's less clothing the women, their faces tend to look better. Their bodies tend to look more proportional. And I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what the deal is, but um, maybe it's intentional. I mean, these are not supposed to be human uh, characters or Martian characters either. I mean, they're, they're meant to be uh, kind of a, a different offspring of life on Mars um, where the males have wings and the females do not. And some of them are kind of giant size and bigger and some of them are smaller and they all have pointed ears. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like, I don't know, maybe there's less lines in drawing the, the female characters because it's just kind of these smooth, the female characters tend to have smooth musculature and smooth shapes. Whereas the male characters tend to have more definition and maybe it's that definition. That's the problem. And, and so maybe that's why the inks and the pencils work better on the female characters as far as keeping them proportional. I just don't know. But whenever men are doing anything in this comic, it's just like, ugh, feels amateur. It, and, and so honestly, there, this is a problem for me, uh, because I, I feel like, you know, they're, they're giving more attention to the female form and they're definitely bringing attention to the female form putting them in as little clothing as as possible so the story is you know uh john john carter and deja thoris husband and wife are caught in this civilization this culture uh that lives in this deep valley underground in a cave and like I said, some of them have wings. The men have wings and some of them are giant and they kind of evolved that way. They don't know why it just happened. 
And actually, this this uh, particular issue gives their backstory and tells how they were escaping some volcanoes and stuff like that. And they found this valley and they found this cave and they felt very safe in this place. And it's this wondrous place. Um, slowly over time, because the men evolved with wings, they started like building their homes in these giant um I can't remember if stalactites or stalagmites. Stalactites, I think, are the, I think are the ones that are hanging down from the the top. Um, and they built you know these these walkways and stuff. But then because they have wings, they're able to fly between them easily. And it's you know they've been there ever since. And this is their world. And as far as they are concerned, there is a wall outside in the valley, and beyond this wall in the valley is hell. And it is, um, and, and that's where you know the the martian people come from but it's also where john carter and Dejah thoris come from anyway um john carter has fought hard and has uh earned and gained a, a place of authority and respect with the people there and Dejah thoris has earned a place of lust for the leader there and so john carter thought he was going to be able to get his wife back because he earned this place but the leader of the place um trumps anything that john carter could possibly have earned and the leader takes dejah thoris and dejah thoris in, in the beginning of this she ignores john carter as she strides into the room on the arm of the leader and kisses him and <clears throat> it's it's really bad john carter is not happy with this and he feels like he's being betrayed by her and he's trying to you know come back to it. Everything he does, he does for her. And he feels like he's being betrayed because she is definitely returning the affection to the leader. He gets alone with her though. And she says how much she missed him. And he's really surprised. He says, well, you know, you, you missed me. You want some comfort from me. Well, you know, maybe you should turn back to um, that leader guy. And she slaps him and she's angry because, uh, everything she does, she's doing for John Carter, and that includes kissing, and it is implied uh, far more than that uh, with with this leader guy. But she's doing all these things basically so she can stay alive to keep him alive, and and it's again, it's it's done all for him. It's it's troubling um, with modern sensibilities, and I'm you know I, I'm thinking through like things uh, you know stories I've heard from history where people. You know, different. They had different uh, sexual attitudes and that sort of thing, and it, it is a troubling thing looking at it right now. Uh, also troubling is that when um, John Carter leaves and he's angry because she basically just lectured him about trusting her, and uh, you know you should have trusted me, and now I, I see I'm mistaken that you wouldn't trust me, and I I've, I trusted that you would forgive me, but I'm mistaken about that, and she leaves, and so he's in a funk, and. He goes and some guys are getting his way on a giant bridge and they have wings. So if they fall off the bridge, they're not going to die, except that he cuts off their wings as he's fighting them and pushes them off. And like, it's really brutal. And all this stuff, all of this stuff is, you know, it's written from a different time and not just from the time it was written in the seventies or the time, you know, that John Carter was written in the early 1900s, but it's written to present this kind of barbaric and savage 
place. And, and, and that's the appeal. I mean, that's the appeal to, of Conan the Barbarian. That's the appeal of John Carter is just this savagery and this bar- barbarism. But you have these two people, John Carter and Dejah Thoris. Now, this is me speaking. I don't know if this is like the, the big appeal for everything, but you have them trying to overcome this. You know, they're, they have this love, this, uh, unstoppable love that I'm hoping, you know, will, <laughs> be mended by the end of this i'm sure it is because of what i know about things that happen in books that take place after this but they have this love for each other that transcends the savagery of the place and the time and that that's a part of the appeal for me is that yes there is this kind of muscular uh, testosterone fueled battle scenes and stuff like that um that appeal to that base nature, but then you also have this relationship between the two of them that also, like I said, transcends all of the barbarism. But yes, after John Carter has that little fight, he, he goes off and learns the backstory from one of his friends. And then he and his friend, um, who by the way, has uh, love for a red Martian and he can't have that love for, that red Martian, of course. And so, uh, he and Garthen, uh, his, his friend who lives there, who doesn't have wings yet, they go, they're summoned to the wall. And this is a cool, fantastic, uh, element that they're putting in here. This giant wall that protects them from this other race. Uh, I'm not sure how you would, uh, pronounce it, but they're Pitothians. Pitothians, I think it's PT. It starts with a PT. Um, maybe it's silent, uh, you know, because you know why you can't hear uh, pterodactyls go to the bathroom because the P is silent. Uh, so maybe it's that Tothians, but I think it's Pitothians. And it turns out they were sent there. And I, I get a vibe, and I'm, I'm going to explain the vibe in a moment here, but they fight, and there are so many soldiers, and they have catapults and everything, and they're fighting. Now, these guys have wings, but the people who are invading do not have wings. And they seem to be almost like cavemen or uh, they're, they're, they're definitely more of a stocky race, not a muscular, but stocky race, more um, hairy and, and definitely more savage and, and barbaric. Um, normally, the wall will be enough to keep them away. But in this case, they have now brought flying lizards and they're riding flying lizards and they're also riding climbing lizards that are climbing the wall. And there, there is this big, massive battle, and the battle just uh, every panel in this battle just doesn't feel right. And and I long, I long for those early days of, of John Carter, where the artwork was just so, so fantastic, and you had uh, Gil Gil Kane and and Carmine Infantino, and just this so just great artwork. And and this is just not that. I, I don't know if it's rushed. I, I, I maybe I just need to stop analyzing that so much. But there's just something about it, and it just doesn't work. And I, I do think it maybe is a translation between pencil and ink. But, um, yeah, it just just doesn't feel right. So anyway, they fight and they fight and they fight until at last there's just two people standing on the on John Carter's side, and that's John Carter and Garthen, and they just fight, and it's this is. You know, they just keep going, keep going. And finally, everyone's dead and it's quiet. And it's just the two of them. And then they look up and there's more. There's more Pithothians coming. 
and they are ready to kill John Carter and Garthen. And it is a great cliffhanger. I mean, as far as story goes, you've got some really cool stuff going on with the, the conflict between John Carter and Dejah Thoris. Um, I get the impression and they don't really say it here, but I get the impression that um, it's kind of a King David and Bathsheba kind of situation here where um, King David is as King, he is staying home and all of his men are in, in battle and he sees Bathsheba who is married to one of his best warriors and best officers. But he sees her on the rooftop as he's out on top of his palace looking down. He sees her on the rooftop bathing and he is filled with lust and he just brings her in to his house and he gets her pregnant. And so he brings her husband back from the war and his her husband will not sleep with her because why should he when his men in arms and brothers in arms can't be with their loved ones? And so. David gets angry and actually gives then an order to go into battle when he returns back, gives the order, go into battle. And then I want you, I want you to have all the soldiers retreat except for Bathsheba's husband. And then Bathsheba's husband is surrounded and killed. And that's how David gets out of his situation. Of course, the situation, he's not out of the situation. You know, there's still consequences to be had for now murder and adultery. I mean, there's two commandments here that the King David is breaking. I'm feeling like here that it's that kind of situation. It doesn't say it outright, but I think that the leader of the people intentionally had John Carter and Garthen brought in when he knew there was going to be attack. And I'm almost wondering if the leader of the people uh, maybe allowed the attack or incited the attack. I don't know. I have not read next. Next issue is Battle at the Bottom of the World. I'm very, very curious and kind of excited to find out what is going to happen here uh, in spite of the artwork, I guess. Good story to me. Trump's artwork. No problem. But anyway, that is John Carter issue number 19. And while the artwork is not the greatest, the storyline is still really pretty good. And I'm holding, you know, my time machine in this situation is this giant hardcover volume, this omnibus volume, uh, best $25 I've ever spent on comics. I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that right now. And that's still with, I don't know how many issues left to go, but, uh, it's, it's just been a very enjoyable discovery to quote, go back in time and read these issues these issues of a comic book that i had heard of but never read and just discovering them now is so much fun so in our next segment we're going to be taking a look at the final issues of the run of devil dinosaur and man uh, machine man and then also taking a look at what was within the ads and stuff of the comics of that month and anything else interesting that might come up as i'm looking at uh cover date december 1978 So let's start with Devil Dinosaur. Now, my time machine that I use when I go back in time um, that allows me to read Devil Dinosaur is another hardcover omnibus. It is much, much thinner than the John Carter hardcover omnibus because it only has nine issues in it. And it has a little bit, some of the copy that is in, you know, with like the letters pages and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's just the story. So I don't know much of what's going on Um if there was like a, a farewell letter from Jack Kirby or anything like that in this issue, all I know is that I've, I've got the story and the story with the, this issue is fairly simple. It's, um, it's really simple. Actually, 
Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy come across a woman who is a cave witch, and she is in kind of lives in this area with all these magic pits. Well, they're considered magic pits because they have uh, gunpowder around them that can explode, and when you push gunpowder into the fiery pit, but they also are time portals, and. So she tells them, get out of here. They say, okay, we're going to get out of here. And as they try to get out of there, they fall into one of the pits. Moon Boy does not go all the way down. He catches himself. Devil Dinosaur goes all the way down and finds himself in 1978, where he interrupts a hunting party. It's hunting for a cougar or something. Um, I know it's a cougar. I'm just not exactly sure why. I think that maybe it's one of those situations where the cougar is like eating livestock. And so they just want to get it and stop it and kill it and whatnot. But anyway, they... um. They start shooting at Devil Dinosaur, and you have essentially a Godzilla scenario of this Tyrannosaurus Rex um, marching through the countryside and then getting into this, the town. And all the people are trying to stop the, the T-Rex. Then you have Moon Boy, who, because he survived, the witch and her son are happy to help him because no one's ever survived the pits. But your buddy is gone. It's unfortunate, but sad, but true. And so what happens is Moon Boy realizes that this witch woman is not as bad as everyone says she is. And then he bows down before her and apologizes and begs for help with getting Devil Dinosaur back. So she and her son go to the big pit in the big cave and they drop these, you know, big old rocks of gunpowdery stuff. I don't know exactly what it is, but. It says later in history it will be used to shoot missiles and, and stuff like that. There's an explosion, and Devil Dinosaur is able to crawl through the portal. And up until this point, I'm thinking there's not much to the story. It's just he goes back in time. Moon Boy asks for help. They help, and Devil Dinosaur comes back. But there is one element at the very end that makes it so it's not just that. It's not just kind of a juvenile adventure story. Which, honestly, uh, Devil Dinosaur was meant to be, I think. And, and this was Jack Kirby looking at, okay, what if I made a Saturday morning cartoon? Well, in this particular Saturday morning cartoon, it ends nicely where the, the witch laughs at Devil Dinosaur. You know, as big as he is, you still are scared and you still need to run for safety because this place, all people fear this place. And this place belongs to us. And Devil Dinosaur, sure enough, does run away because he and Moon Boy both are scared and they'll just, we're going to go to the green Valley. Let's go to the green Valley and stay there. There's plenty of room for us there. We don't need to worry about this place. Leave that to them. And then as they leave, the son says, you know, we're scared too. Like we're like, we're just like everyone else. You know, she's saying devil dinosaur is just like everyone else. And, um, and her son says, we're just like everyone else here too. We live here. The, the only difference is we live here with the stuff that scares us. And she says, no, but we're learning from the stuff that scares us and it will bring us safety and maybe power one day. And so that capper makes it a worthy story, I think, where all this stuff is happening, but it's happening in the context of kind of revealing something about the characters involved, even if it's not like this very, you know, it's really not a difficult solution to their problem, but it's a character revelation. And, and I like it. I like it. And for the most part, I like Devil Dinosaur. This is, if you can get your hands on the issues or get your hands on this omnibus edition, um, I recommend this to people who are fans of Jack Kirby. And I re recommend this to people who are artists and want to study some really cool artwork and just some wacky 
wonky, weird technology and strange uh, landscapes and powerful characters. Uh, this is Jack Kirby doing what I think is Jack Kirby. Uh, it's just he's getting to cut loose and just do fun stuff for him. And, you know, of course, we're reading this in the context of Marvel's Cosmic Comics because it is a spinoff from the 2001 comic book. And, you know, they say there's going to be more adventures and there are more adventures with Devil Dinosaur. Devil Dinosaur comes into the present day. People go into the the past and interact with Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy. There's currently a comic book series called Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, which I haven't picked up. I've heard good things about it, but, um, you know, I've got comic book dollars that are going to other places that honestly aren't really Marvel and DC, except for some of the monster stuff from, from Marvel. And I've been buying the dark crystal series, which is really interesting and kind of good. It's based on the screenplay that would have been the sequel to the dark crystal from about 10 years ago, maybe. But anyway, I, I recommend this. I think this is good. Jack Kirby and the simplicity of the storytelling is just served well by the power of the artwork. So let's move our attention over to Machine Man, uh, which is also spinning out of uh, 2001. Now, Devil Dinosaur spins out of 2001 spiritually, okay, not from characters. Machine Man spins out of 2001 with the character. And we have another pretty simple character. Uh, Last issue was a cliffhanger. (laughs) Um where there was a nuclear blast and Machine Man was going to die. And we don't get to see how he actually survives. He's just alive and well and goes and talks to the people of the army. And then they say, how did you survive? And he says, let me show you. So instead of seeing him actually survive, we see we have a nine panel page of him demonstrating how he survived in the front lawn of this uh, army office <laughs> installation. <laughs> and so he goes, stands in the grass and says, when the... Uh, I am a robot, and so I am able to do things, you know, quicker than anyone else would be able to do it. And I just shot a blast into the ground that I calculated how deep it needed to be for me to protect me from the blast of the nuclear blast. And I dropped into the hole before the blast overwhelmed me. And then after the radiation cleared up enough, I just used my springs to jump out of the hole. And that's how he survived. <laughs> that's it. Uh, meanwhile, his friend, the psychiatrist, and uh, Colonel Craig. Uh, they're wringing their hands because their friend is dead. And of course, Craig didn't think he was a friend, but now he admits that he kind of liked the guy. And, and then machine man comes and says, Hey, uh, news of my death or, um, premature or whatever. And then we go to the bad guys and the bad guys have hired someone to go and capture machine man. And he's a guy who steals weapons. And so they want him to steal the ultimate weapon. He pretends to be machine man's lawyer. And tricks Machine Man into turning off or deactivating his his weapon systems, although it's questionable if it actually is a trick. He deactivates his weapons systems and actually takes off his human face to reveal his his machine face. And but he does so and then immediately attacks the guy, the lawyer, knowing it is, you know, someone who has weapons of, of his own. And so there's a brief fight and a fire and the guy escapes and you know, to come back another day. Uh, Unfortunately, that other day is not going to happen in the pages of Machine Man. It's going to happen in the pages of The Incredible Hulk because that is where Machine Man's adventures will continue. um, 
on the letters page, it actually says, you holding your hands, the last issue of Machine Man? Possibly. <laughs> Jack is laying aside his comics work for the time being to concentrate on the storyboards of the all-new Fantastic Four cartoon series premiering this fall on NBC. And just on the opposite page, you have a full-page ad for Saturday Morning Fever. It's on the rise on NBC. And it reveals that at 8 o'clock Eastern Time, Yogi's Space Race. At 9.30 Eastern Time, Janna of the Jungle in the Godzilla Power Hour at 9.30. And then the new Fantastic Four at 10.30 Eastern Time. And I, the new is kind of inserted in there as a correction. And I think that's because maybe Herbie makes it a different Fantastic Four. I'm not sure. But that's their cartoon lineup from 8 o'clock till uh basically 11 but I, i'm not sure if anything else is happening different at 8 30 but there's just no room for it maybe but yeah so at this time you had a fantastic four cartoon series and a godzilla cartoon series and i remember godzilla i do not remember fantastic four i just don't but i'm getting into i'm getting ahead of myself really because we're not supposed to be talking about the ads and the copy yet we're, we're here to talk about machine man and okay so what this was intended to be what I thought this was going to be was going to be more of a machine man. It's a superhero version of Howard the duck. That's what it is. It's machine man making commentary on current culture and, um, and life, especially in the United States. It doesn't go there quite as strongly as I expected it to, but that's partially because I think there has to be lots and lots of superhero stuff. Now in this issue, there isn't necessarily lots and lots of superhero stuff. You have, um, the bad guys hiring the hunter. You have Machine Man making his return and giving his demonstration of how he survived the nuclear blast. Then you have Machine Man playing baseball, and they are excited. The guy, the guys who are going to play baseball with him are super excited to play baseball with him until he plays. And he atomizes the baseball when he swings at the pitch and destroys the baseball with the bat because he's so strong. And then uh, there's a fly ball, and he just extends his arm to catch it. And then he just extends his arm from the outfield to get the runner out and they, they kick him out of the game. And that's really the extent of the machine man just trying to make his way in the world because then you have him dealing with the, the, uh, the weapons thief. The one thing that really worked well for me is right as they're talking to the lawyer. And I guess this does get into some of the commentary there is, He's tricking him into disarming his weapon systems because you need to be more like the people. And that one thing will improve his case because he's going to go on trial. And so he does so. But to do so, he takes his face off. And so even as they're talking about trying to make him more human, and even as they're doing that, they're also tricking him. But he has to take his face off and reveal his mechanical face. And it's a, you know, if if it wasn't a... If it wasn't a scene with a lawyer who's trying to trick him, but it was actually a scene with a lawyer, I think it would have been a pretty powerful scene where he takes off his face to become more human, but in doing so reveals that he's not human. Uh, and because you see his gray face with uh, without the skin tones and the nose and uh, the, the proper mouth that a human would have. And it's nice. And then he does the whole battle that way with, with without his human face. And when he's done with the battle, he puts the face back on. And there's not really a resolution to all this stuff that's going on with him trying to, you know, fit in and, and be, be quote unquote human, but it's good. It's good. Now I back to, do I recommend this now that we're finished with it? I do recommend this. I think this is something worth your time, worth your time. If you're into sci-fi comics, especially if you like Jack Kirby's artwork, 
Um, I recommend going back into 2001. I mean, I recommended the 2001 stuff already. Um, this doesn't get as high of a recommendation maybe as, as Devil Dinosaur, even though this has more depth than Devil Dinosaur. I mean, Devil Dinosaur doesn't really say too much. It, it does try and say a couple things. And you, that's the thing I appreciate about what Jack Kirby is doing with this is he's trying to get into ideas. He's not just trying to tell big bombastic stories, but he's trying to tell big bombastic stories that have uh, human ideas and, and a real a genuine humanity to them. So Machine Man and Howard the Duck are, you know, they're very different in tone, but they're of the same, uh, the same type. And, and I like them. I, I, and so I like Machine Man, uh, but it's not one that I would say, Hey, you got to rush out and get this because this is so amazing. It's not the same way I was with like John Carter. John Carter, I just think is just, you know, if you even think you might possibly like it, you're going to like it with Machine Man. You know, if you find it and you find it cheap, grab it. Uh, there is going to be a Machine Man omnibus. I have not ordered this book yet, but it is it collects Machine Man issues 1 through 19, so it includes stuff that's not Jack Kirby. It also uh, includes the Incredible Hulk issues that I was talking about, uh, and then also includes Marvel Comics Presents number 10. And so it has some of the, the newer stuff. Machine Man also went beyond the pages of this book and became one of the coolest parts to me of the, um, oh... Earth X series that Jim Kruger and Alex Ross were involved in, but for a character that really made its debut in an completely unrelated to the Marvel universe, 2001, a space odyssey comic book series. He, he has a, he's made a place for himself. He has an action figure or two. I've, I've recently seen a action figure two pack that comes with a comic book and, uh, it's the, three and three quarter size action figures and machine man was one of them. I can't remember the second one and I don't remember the comic book, but so there's, there's the information for you. But then there's also a Marvel legends um, action figure that I have. And I really like, like that action figure. And he has, uh, you can pull off his hands and stick on extended arms for him. And it's cool, but yeah, he's, he's made a splash and he's still a part of the Marvel universe, even at this time. So let's take a look at some of the ads and copy that are in these comic books from cover date of December. Uh, there's a bunch of Spider-Man toys and this, the one Spider-Man toy I might have talked about before. I didn't have it, but it's this 12 inch, um, basically immobile. <laughs> he can't move his arms, uh, but he can he has a web that like you can make him swing on. He, there's a helicopter that you can put him on. And uh, I remember a friend bringing that to our beavers meeting uh, in Canada. It wasn't um, wasn't Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. It was the beavers. And um, yeah, I remember him bringing that and we were playing with that. There's also another full page of Spider-Man toys that did have one toy that I had, and that was a, um, a Corgi miniature car. And I had this the full van, full size van with Spider-Man on the side. And I that was a it was a car that I liked. I played with a lot. And there's other toys on here, like the Spider-Man utility belt and the sharpshooter that, again, friends had, but I didn't have. Um, there's uh, subscription pages. Have a Merry Christmas Marvel style. And you can on, on this one, you can purchase uh, the books and stuff. How to draw comics the Marvel way. Marvel's Complete Superhero Battles, um, The Incredible Hulk uh, Calendar, 1979, Son of Origins, Bring on the Bad Guys. The uh, subscription page that they have, 
If you order five, you get a free subscription to Star Wars, and each of these subscriptions will only cost you $4.50 for the first one and $4 for the second one, and then you get that free subscription to Star Wars if you do that. There's a Hostess ad that it's not um, one of those comic book versions of a you know the hostess ads but it's have fun with hostess cupcakes and twinkie cakes because they come with these free wacky tv show cards and so it's kind of a precursor to the idea of the um garbage pail kids kind of thing uh because it has like barnaby bones and it's this detective he's he's wearing a fedora but he's all you know he's a skeleton and it's uh i remember getting cards out of twinkie boxes when i would go to my grandma's house and that was fun there's a article or not an article, there's an ad for the Lego Expert Builder series, uh, which I think became Technique or Technic. But I would always see these and think they were so cool, but I never got them because they had all these moving pieces and I just wanted space stuff, man. I just wanted I just wanted to build spaceships and things that looked like stuff from Star Wars. And you know, I didn't have any Star Wars Lego sets like they have now, but I had Star Wars Lego sets, you know what I mean? The actual bullpen bulletin has uh, Stan Lee announcing that um, Japan, a, a Japanese television studio, is going to be making a Spider-Man TV show, a live-action weekly TV series, which I really wish they put on DVD sometime. It used to be on their website, but it's not, and I, I enjoyed watching those. Uh, they talk about Godzilla and the Godzilla issue that we read for uh, the earlier segment in the December 1978, and you know, it's not not much more <laughs> that's really exciting to me to talk about some of the books that's coming out with Simon and Schuster. And yeah, it just feels like the fantastic four show is kind of the big news. There's of course the flea market pages, which I'm not sure if that's what actually you're supposed to call them, but that's what I'm calling them. And on the place in the, the human fly, uh, machine man had the leathers page, but in the place for in the human fly issue that I have, where the letters page would be, there's an advertisement for the Marvel Comics Group proudly presents the Avengers Cosmic Adventure Epic. And it says, Jim Shooter, David Wenzel, and Pablo Marcus continue to weave a census-stunning saga that defies description, featuring almost every character in the Marvel Universe. It's Marvel at its best, on sale now. It doesn't tell what issues they are. <laughs> I mean, it'd be easy to figure out. Um, it, probably the issues that are on the stand there, and you know, now with the internet, you can easily find that thing out, but... I just find it funny that they don't give that information. That's about it then. Um, it was a fun month. It was a fun month with Jaws 2 and with the end of Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. That means that the Ben's bullpen bulletins in the future are going to be much, much shorter. Uh, but that's not a bad thing until we get into some extra stuff that doesn't exactly fit the, the, uh, the rules that I set down for what Marvel's Cosmic Comics actually are. Now, if you were to look at the newsstand or the spinner rack or whatever in September of 1978, you would see a, a bunch of comics like we've, that we've already talked about. And there's, there's more obviously that were on, on the stands, lots of Spider-Man stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But there's one thing that I wanted to mention and uh, it actually kind of tripped me up a little bit because in September there was a comic book released and it kind of tripped up the whole how does Marvel's Cosmic Comics work here? Because I'm using the cover date to help index things. 
But then I use the on sale date, you know, because I also want to talk about when did it hit. And that's our time machine coordinates, you know. And so I'm, I'm kind of I have the time machine coordinates that allow us to um, take, you know, wh- where are we? We're back in 1978, September and what was happening in 1978, September, blah, blah, blah. Well, 1978, September 19th. Comic book was put on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World, that a cover date of January 1979. And so I'm looking at this right now. And as I'm organizing things, I organize, like I said, by the cover date. And that's what I use. But for the time travel aspect of things, I use that on sale date to set our time machine coordinates. Well, we're going to set our time machine coordinates for next month for when we get into it and this issue even though it was on the spinner rack when we went back in time we saw this but we're going to save it and we're going to look at it next with the next round with january of 1979 the comic book i'm talking about is one that i'm very very excited about though very excited it's micronauts issue number one and i really bounce back and forth considering to do it for this round. But then I thought, you know, that means next round, we actually won't cover any Micronauts because um, the the next issue of Micronauts is February 1979 and actually on sale in uh, December or uh, November. So there wasn't a Micronauts issue uh, on the stands for October. Uh, it was just this one was out there for like a month and a half or whatever longer, you know, the the date that they put on there, the cover date, that's to tell when you take it off the shelf. And so this one just got an extra extra amount of time. It went on the shelf at the same time as all these other issues that were supposed to go off the shelf in December. But then this one was meant to stay on the shelf for another month longer. And I think they really wanted to build build it up because, I mean, let's face it, uh, this was them trying to do some more, get some more of that Star Wars money. Now, there wasn't a movie that went along with it. It was just action figures. And we'll talk about that in our next round. So for now, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for spending your time as we talk about comics and fun stuff like that. And until next time, may the force be with you and Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, trapped on a man-made wheel of death, the Star Warriors face the ultimate gamble, Star Wars. Issue number 19, covered at January 1979.